Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. It says, at that time, sorry, jump down to verse 28. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we ended our last session by beginning to unpack these verses. As far as we got, though, was to point out that Jesus offers us his yoke, as opposed to the yoke of slavery of trying to keep the law. So let me just kind of remind you, we'll start off tonight by picking up where we left off. Go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul is writing to a group of people who are being taught that there's more they had to do in order to be saved, and there are some things they had to do, which isn't true. And in chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 1, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Go to Acts chapter 15 and look at verses 1 through 11. In Acts chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. This is down in Antioch. They were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the, other, and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, of, early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing, here you see it, a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done, and through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. What I want you to see here is that the scripture clearly shows that trying to get saved under the law is a yoke of slavery. Go back to Galatians. You were in Galatians 5. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Here Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. So not only is trying to get saved by being good enough and trying to keep God's law a yoke, it's also a curse because 
The law says in order to be saved by being good enough and trying to keep God's law, you have to what? You have to be perfect at it. <laughs> That's impossible. Um, go to James. Well, actually, I'll just quote it for you for the sake of time. In James chapter 2, verse 10, God through James says, If you're able to keep the whole law of God, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. So Jesus, when he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he, when he says, Come to me, you weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, Come to me, all who are weary of trying to keep the law of God and failing. Come to me, all who are weary of the heavy burden of the law's perfection demands that you cannot bear. Come to me, because I want to give you rest. That's why he says, Take my yoke and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what does he say right after that? And you will find rest for your souls. So when Jesus comes, he says, look, I want you to be set free from that yoke of slavery to trying to be right by the law. But then he says, I want you to take my yoke upon you. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to talk about that a little bit tonight. Here he says, I want you to be set free from that burden and that struggle of trying to be right before God by being good enough. Come to me and receive my yoke, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you're going to find rest for your souls. So my question first off, before we get into this a little bit deeper, is how do we put on the yoke of Jesus? Believe, by faith. Go to Romans chapter 3. Let me just give you some scriptures to kind of lay it out for us on how we put on the yoke of Christ. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. says, what are we then? So, sorry, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For you have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By the way, did you notice in your Bibles that these verses that I just read to you are kind of written a little bit differently? Uh, the heading, uh, sorry, the, the, the tabs, if you will, are a little bit different. It's because they're quoting from the Old Testament. And when you see it like that, you'll see these are all quotes. This isn't Paul saying, I think people are really have venom on their tongues and all this stuff. No, all he's doing is quoting the Old Testament and how God all along has been saying, man is not righteous in and of himself. Keep reading, though. It says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, like you just said, Mike, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 11 through 14. We've looked a lot in Galatians at how Paul was saying, look, 
If you're going to be right before God by being good enough or trying to keep the law and being circumcised and doing all these outward things, you're under a curse, and that's a yoke of slavery. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, Paul goes on and he says this. He says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. He quotes from Hosea. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Through faith. How you put on the yoke of Christ is by, through faith, believing that what Jesus did was live the life you could not live. He lived the sinless life. He was put to death by God because of us, not because of Him. And He rose from the dead by His own power. And He, being that sacrificial lamb that all along the law and everything had been pointing to, and the sacrificial system, by faith, when you actually believe that you will be righteous before God because of what Jesus has done, and you receive Him by faith, you then put on the yoke of Christ by believing. That's it. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 3. The Hebrew writer actually goes into more detail about this in Hebrews chapter 3. Because now we're going to start getting into that term rest that Jesus offers. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. In Hebrews chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 19. Again, the Hebrew writer is quoting from the Old Testament. You see how it's, it's written a little bit different in your Bibles there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter the rest of God. Why? Because of unbelief. They missed out on the rest because they wouldn't believe. Now continue reading in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has written somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, 
called today, saying through, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The Hebrew writer is saying this. He said, look, God said then because of their unbelief, they shall not enter my rest. But later on, hundreds of years later, God, through the prophet David, has him write in the Psalms, Today, if you hear his heart, do not harden, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. And so again, he's saying, look, even though they missed out on the rest of God, that doesn't mean that it's not still available to us. And it is. That's why he said there's a future day. And how do we enter that rest? We enter it by faith, believing. Go ahead, Warren. I, I, if I understand what you mean by soul's rest, Warren's question, is this God's rest? Same thing as soul's rest. It's, it, it's a security of your salvation. It's, you stop, you're no longer trusting in yourself to be right before God. You totally believe that you're right through Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. I've run into too many Christians over the years who, if I say to them, if you were to die today, and by the way, and, and I put Christians in quotes, because only God knows whether or not they really believe. As you know, the Bible is very clear. There are many that can spring up and sure look like salvation, but they're rocky soil conversions. And in, when trouble comes, they're going to go away. There's many who are going to spring up and look like real salvation, but they're thorny soil conversions. And the cares of this world are going to choke them up. And, and they're not really going to last because it's not real salvation. It's not for us to determine who's saved and who's not. But the Hebrew writer clearly is saying, if you hang on firm to the end, this is evidence that you truly are saved. But you hopefully understand, as we're going to get to later tonight, it's not you holding on. It's him holding on to you. But I've asked many a churchgoer, let me put it that way to you, over the years as I've traveled the country and gone and had meals in their homes or talked to them after church somewhere. And I would say to them, you know, you've been coming to church for, you know, 50 years. If you died today, would you go to heaven? And a lot of times, most of the time, unfortunately, I hear people say, I really hope so. And I'll say to them, well, what do you mean you hope so? And they'll say, well, I believe in Jesus and I've been trying to live a good life. Have they entered into his rest? No, because we enter into his rest when we stop trying to work ourselves into heaven. We rest from our work, just like the father rested from his on the seventh day. Folks, I can look you in the eye and say, I know I'm going to heaven. You know why? Because I put all my eggs in one basket and his name is Jesus Christ. He lived the sinless life. He rose from the dead. He, was, he died in my place and by faith, I believe, and by the way, the Bible also says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, that his spirit testifies with my spirit that I'm his child. I'm all set. I have soul rest in that sense. Yes, ma'am. Yes, you're struggling with, Susan says she's struggling with the word strive in verse 11. Has strive to enter that rest. And so I went to the cross references and really. All right, let me hit this quick because we've got a lot to cover. If you look at the fact that Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, a verse we're going to look at later on, if Susan listens. But uh, um, you're welcome. Uh, and we're going to look at the fact that it's God who works in us, both to will and to act according to his good purpose. But the verse just prior to that says, 
In verse 12, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In Acts chapter 13, Paul goes into a synagogue and he shares the gospel. The people, of course, are or not of course, but in this situation, they are moved by God. They're curious. By the way, that wouldn't happen unless God was doing his work in their hearts, because I think we just read in Romans that no one understands and no one seeks God. So the people are being drawn by God and they say to him, well, would you come back next Saturday and talk some more? And Paul says a very interesting thing. He says, continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's begun to draw you. You have to be faithful to stay in it. Because as God begins to draw somebody, who else is out there trying to keep them from believing? So do you understand a little bit more about striving to enter this rest? What he's saying is, you're going to have to fight against the Satan. You're going to have to fight against the world system. You're going to have to fight against your own flesh, which wants credit. To really come to faith in Christ takes a lot of guts. It's not works. It's, I, I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, believing that it's you who's doing it. And you, we'll get to more of that later. But what I'm, that's why, as we looked at earlier, uh, the kingdom of God moves forward by forts, and it's the forceful who enter into it. Remember, we looked at that earlier in our study. You're, you're not a sissy if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because in this world today, you're going against the street. You're going against everything. We're fighting against not human and not flesh and blood, but we're fighting against principalities of evil in the dark realms. Folks, it's not weak to put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's hard. So, go to, uh, back to Matthew chapter 11, though, because there's something else I want to point out to you. Jesus has just some, he said, he said, come to me, you're weary who were under the yoke of slavery, of trying to be right before God through the law. Come to you, you are under the burden of perfection and the demands of perfection of the law. Come to me, you weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And what does he say next? Because he says, I offer you rest. What's the very next thing he says? Take my what? Hang on for a second. Jesus has just offered us rest, and the first thing he hands us is a yoke? Don't miss this. Do not forget that even though Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light, it's still a yoke and it's still a burden. Too many people try to, quote unquote, receive Jesus by faith just to escape hell, but their lives are lived for themselves and not for the one who died for them. When I say to you and I share with you what Jesus is saying, that if you come to him in faith, you will enter that rest. You will enter that rest of trying to be right before God and thinking you have to work hard to please him. And you really start to understand there's no condemnation. There are some that say, man, all I have to do is just believe in Jesus and, and I'm all set for heaven. And then from this point on, they live their lives still for themselves saying, I'm good because I believe in Jesus. Well, let me share with you some scriptures that kind of tied back to that strive thing you were just talking about. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 15. Paul says, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. When you say yes to Jesus' yoke, you are submitting yourself to his lordship, and he gets to be in charge of what happens next in your life. You're not just saying, keep me from going to hell. 
you're actually saying, you are my Lord. Go to Luke chapter 9. Look at verses 23 and 24. As you're turning to Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, remember Jesus himself even said, before you say yes to me, you better count the cost. In Luke chapter 9, listen to what he says in verses 23 and 24. And he, he, Jesus, said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, what? Daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he's not talking about just dying for him, although that might be a part of what you're called to if, if you say yes to him and his, you submit to his plan for your life. He's also, you're dying to your plans for your life. All the dreams you had. By the way, as parents, don't we have lots of dreams and plans we'd love to see our kids? But if we're good parents, godly parents, we also have to be reminded that one day in a church service, probably when they were little, we gave them to the Lord. And we said, this child is yours. And we have to be reminded that, man, I would love to see my kid do this, that, and the other. And God says, um, I thought you gave them to me. And I get to call the shots. And then as individuals, we have to be reminded that when we gave our life to Jesus Christ, we submitted to his yoke. We submitted to his burden. And he gets to call the shots and how we live our lives. We no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. We're to deny ourselves and our plans daily and submit ourselves to the Father. Anybody that's not willing to do that, Jesus said, cannot be my disciple. Like I said, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not a sissy. This is hard work. Go to Philippians chapter 3. Look at verses 7 through 19. Paul has just been talking about all that he gave up in order to follow Christ. All the plans that he had. He was working his way up the ladder and trying to become a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And everything that he had been working for, he considered his loss. But in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, listen to what Paul says. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Then he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly 
and their glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. And again, folks, I'm not to take too much time on this because that's not what God wants me to talk about tonight. But let's be honest, as we look at the church, especially in America today, we see a big emphasis on living your life, fulfilling your dreams, your best life now. And the church today is filling seats with messages that don't talk about sacrifice and surrender and lordship and yielding to God's plan. It's all about building up man and his self. And that sells and it fills sanctuaries. But Jesus said that wide is the path that goes to destruction and many go that way. And narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and few there be that find it. Go to Colossians. You're in Philippians. Turn over one book to Colossians. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So, was Paul writing to believers or unbelievers here? He's writing to believers, and he was saying, look, since you have been raised with Christ, that word if could be translated since, since you've been raised with Christ, you need to learn how to daily say no to your flesh and yes to the Spirit. You need to set your mind on not earthly things, but on spiritual things. You need to look at things with God's eyes. And oh, by the way, even though you've been set free from sin in the sense that you're not going to be judged for it anymore, you've been made righteous because of Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf, you're still going to struggle with it. Anybody here? I mean, I would sure like to meet you, but is anybody here doesn't have any problem with sin anymore now that you're saved? Does anybody want to stand up and take a couple of bows? We still all struggle, but at the same time, you're, you're not going to become sinless if you get saved, but you will sin less if he's your Lord. Do you understand the difference? You won't become sinless, but you will sin less as you allow this lordship to take root. As you, if you truly have given your life to Christ, he who began the good work in you will finish it. He's doing his work. So as I just share with you, don't forget his yoke. Even though Jesus says his yoke is easy and his burden is light, it's still a yoke. It's still a burden. Now, some of you would say after these scriptures that I just read to you, you say, okay, Jim, I see what you're saying, but how then is Jesus' yoke easy and his burden light? What you just read to me didn't sound easy or light. Well, you're probably thinking this sounds hard and heavy. Here's the difference. The difference is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside all believers. Let me say that to you again. The difference is the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of all believers. Before you were saved, you were on your own, trying your best to be good. How'd you do? No, because you'd had no ability to do it. It's impossible. But now that we have been made new, 
in the Spirit. We're still struggling in this flesh, but we now have within us the power of the Holy Spirit to give us the ability as we learn on a daily basis to say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit. Even though we've been made new in Christ, we have to now learn how to let what has been made new be manifested in our daily body, in our daily life. So let's take a look at a couple of things. I want to take you back to a couple of promises that God made to the nation of Israel and Judah back in Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel chapter 36, look at verses 26 and 27. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 26, God says to the nation of Israel, He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Listen to what God says to the nation of Israel, what's promised to them at the end of the tribulation period. The, the, the part of Israel that survives the tribulation, when all Israel that's left is going to be saved, according to Romans chapter 11. God says, at that time, I'm going to erase your sin. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I'm going to cause you to obey my commands. I'm going to be the one doing it. Pretty cool, huh? Jump over to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Listen to what God promises Israel again. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Now it's interesting. Here again, God says, when I save Israel at the end of the tribulation period, I'm going to erase their sin and I'm going to write my law on their hearts. It's just going to come from within them, their obedience. Now, some of you are saying, OK, Jim, but that's a promise to Israel at the end of the tribulation. What's that got to do with us? Oh, if you're actually asking that question, I can't wait to show you the good news. Go to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. Look at verses one through six. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Did you catch that? 
that all the promises for Israel that are going to be ultimately fulfilled in Israel at the end of the time, all those promises for Israel are ours now because of Jesus Christ. That new covenant that he's going to make with them is ours now. What did he promise? He's going to erase their sin. He's going to wash them clean. He's going to put his spirit within them, and he's going to write his law in their hearts, and he's going to, by his spirit, cause them to obey his commands. Folks, that is yours available today. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 through 23. Ephesians 1, 13 through 23. Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, now... First off, when you believed, you heard the word of truth. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a guarantee of your inheritance. Folks, who, I, if you're truly saved and you've put your faith in Christ and you have entered into that rest, hopefully none of you will say, I hope I'm going to heaven. Hopefully you have his spirit confirmed with your spirit that you're his. That's why in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want his children worrying and hoping and wondering whether or not we're going to get to heaven. There's a confidence. We enter into his rest. Now, at the same time, after you were believed, he believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He then, Paul said, I'm praying for you now that I've heard of your faith and your love for each other. My prayer is multifaceted. I'm praying that you'd understand the hope to which he's called you, the inheritance that you've already received in being in Christ. We don't even have time to get into Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, which the Bible says we're already seated in the heavenly realms. <laughs> Makes your head blow up. But he says also his immeasurable power that's available to us who believe. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives within you because in Christ, the, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been filled in, with him. You, you've got Christ within you, that same power that rose Jesus from the dead, because he rose himself from the dead, lives within you and me. And he has been given as head to who? We read it here. The church, who fills everything in every... Folks, the reason why his yoke is easy and his burden is light, if you read it like, man, I've got to do these things and I've got to do this and I've got to do that, it's going to seem hard and heavy. But the reason his burden is light and his yoke is easy is, he says, come to me and watch me do it through you. Folks, my preaching changed when I stopped worrying about how good I was going to do. 
And I believed that he was going to do it. My wife will tell you, there was a change as she's been listening to me for now 30 to 40 years. I pray a lot of times now before I get started, thank you for what you're going to do. You know why? Because I believe that the one who has asked me to do this is going to empower me to do it. And he does things that I actually go back home after and say, I want to write that down. That wasn't in my notes. Go to Philippians chapter 2. You're in Ephesians. Just turn over to Philippians chapter 2, the passage we talked about earlier, Susan. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take it serious because it's God who's working in you, both to will, to have the desire, and to work for his good pleasure. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul has a tendency to write some of the best run-on sentences you've ever seen. And because of that, we've missed a few things. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, and then he describes them, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So what we're going to do is we're going to reread this and we're going to take out who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We're going to reread it now without that little description of God. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Did you catch that? Paul says, I hope you do a good job. No. He says, I want you to take serious what's been put in. You need to daily choose to say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. But once you do, guess who takes over? It's God who not only gives you the desire, but the ability to act it out as you yield to him. I can't wait to show you a couple more things coming up here in the scriptures. In the same way, he then goes on and says, may God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Too many of us have saying, I'm trying my hardest. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. Then you've never entered into his rest when it comes to your work after salvation. You might have entered into his rest for salvation. But as you're going to see in just a little bit, there's more to that rest. But I get ahead of myself. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Look at verses 4 and 5. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul says, And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Did you see it? Who is the one that's going to direct our hearts to the love of God? The Lord. Who's going to give us the perseverance of Christ? The Lord. What do we have to do then? Believe and ask. Is there something God says to do in his word? Don't say, I can't do that. Well, you're right if you say you can't do that, because you can't. But he wants you to. So what do you do? You say, Lord, you want me to forgive so-and-so, but I don't want to. And I can't. God says, oh, yes, you can if you let me do it. All right, Lord, I believe that you will. Let's go. By the way, do you all realize that's exactly how Jesus lived his life while he was on the earth? Go to John chapter 14. Jesus could have lived in his own power. I mean, he was God. 
But the Bible says very clearly that he did not claim equality with God, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the role of a servant. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and following talks about that. Jesus did not walk in his own power. He walked in the power of the Father. Look at John chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Did you catch that? Did Jesus do it or did the Father do it through him? The Father did through him because he said in John chapter 5, verse 19, the Son can do nothing by himself. That's why Jesus, when he taught us about the abiding relationship in John chapter 15, verse 5, says to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Folks, I hope this room full of people and people listening have entered into God's rest through believing in Jesus for salvation, but there's more to it. There's more rest. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, 15 through 19, the same John 15 through 19. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and the Father will give another helper to be with you forever. And even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you and in you. And I will be, and I'll not leave you as an orphan. I will come to you and go on. I, I love the fact that you just read John chapter 14, verses 15 through 20, because that's exactly the very next scripture I was just about to read. That means you're tracking with me. That's awesome. That means the Spirit's the one doing the teaching and not me, because he's the one that told me to write this down, and you, that's exactly where it's going to go. He then says, on that day, the Holy Spirit will be in you, and you'll realize I'm in you, and you're in me, and I'm in the Father, just like Jesus said, the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father. We got that same relationship now, folks, through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't fall prey to that lie of, all right, I can't save myself, but Jesus did that. But now I've got to live the Christian life. You can't. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light if you believe that he will. For the sake of time, I want to just, in the time we have left, take us even deeper. Since coming to Jesus by faith and resting from our works for salvation is how we put on the yoke of Christ and requires submission to him. By the way, this is why many authors of the books of the Bible describe themselves as slaves or bondservants of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that when Paul wrote that in, in, in Ephesians? He said, I, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. In other words, when Paul gave his life to the Lord, all the plans that Paul had were laid aside. Oh, and Paul had plans. I mean, he was working his way up, trying to become the best in his field. But he laid it all aside to follow Jesus Christ. He said, forgetting what's behind, I count that all as rubbish. And by the way, did God's plan for Paul include working his way up the ladder in Christendom? Or did it include being beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead, imprisoned, mocked, even questioned by the church whether or not he really was an apostle? His whole life included, we don't know what his thorn was, but a thorn in his flesh that he prayed three times God would remove. And God says, no, my purpose is for you or to show my grace through your weakness. And so I'm going to leave it. When he gave his life to Jesus Christ, he gave up himself. 
So not only do we surrender ourselves to him in holy living, we also surrender our plans and our goals for our lives, and we submit to the plan and the purpose for which he saved us, and he wants to use us. I want to take you deeper than most Christians really dare go. It's really easy to preach that you can enter his rest and go to heaven when you die. But I want to talk to you about between when you get saved and when you go to heaven. Have you really fully submitted to his yoke? Are you really living the life that God has for you? Or are you doing your, what you want to do in this world and trying to be a good Christian at the same time? Is he allowed to tell you when to quit? What job to take, what job not to take? Is he allowed to say whether or not you can be married or not married? By the way, I'm quoting a bunch of scriptures right now. There's passages that talk about all this stuff. Is he allowed to choose how your life goes from here on out? Is he allowed to be in control of what happens to your spouse? Is he allowed to be in control of what happens to your children? Or are you one of those people that says, Lord, I gave you my life. Why isn't it working out the way I want it to? Do you see the silliness of that? When we give him our life, we give him our life. And he gets to choose how it goes. And the Bible actually says that he has a purpose and a plan that he's already planned ahead of time for each of us. We love to quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, how we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It's not of works so that no one boasts. It's a gift of God. Can anybody tell me what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship. Good, keep going. Created in Christ Jesus to do what? Good works. What's the rest of it? Which he prepared in advance for us to do. Jeremiah says, I came to realize that he had set me apart before I was born to be a prophet to the nations. By the way, was Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's life easy? Did he have a big church? Paul said that God had set him apart before he was born to be a preacher to the Gentiles. Folks, not only did God save you, he purport, before you were born already had in mind why he's going to save you and what he wants to do through you. Is he allowed to do that? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 10 and 11. First Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a gift. By the way, did you catch that? You've all received at least a gift from God. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I have come to realize that entering into his rest is more than just trusting him for my salvation. Entering into his rest also means Learning how on a daily basis to trust that God will do through me what he wants to do through me and only doing what God has for me to do. Even though there's lots of people in this world that have ideas of what I should do and how I... I always have trouble telling people about my back. Because you know why? There's a whole bunch of you out there that already haven't figured out what I'm supposed to do. Whether I'm supposed to have surgery, not supposed to have surgery. Have you tried this? No, we should be, you should be taking this. You should lose a few pounds, Jim. All this stuff... It's always interesting to me 
I'm gonna ask for a show of hands real quick. How many of you are willing to acknowledge in this room right now in front of everybody, you struggle sometimes with knowing what God's plan is for your life. Anybody struggle with that? Okay, put your hands down. Isn't it interesting that we always know for a fact what God's plan is for somebody else? <laughs> How they should be doing it, what kind of car they should drive, all this kind of stuff. I've come to realize that part of my yielding myself to Jesus is listening only to him as to what it is that I'm to do and to say yes to and say no to. I'm not to let the church or other people tell me what I'm supposed to be doing. He's the one who's called me, and he's the one that has a plan for my life. And resting comes when I learn how to do what it is he's called me to do by his strength and that alone. I'm going to do something in the 10 minutes that we have left that I've never been able to do in less than two hours. Go, to Mark, go with me to Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, look at verses 7 through 9. And he, this is Jesus, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So Jesus, when he sends his disciples out two by two, here are his instructions. You can't bring any money, you can't bring any food, and you can't bring a change of clothes. You got a walking stick, fine. You got sandals on, that's okay. But you can't bring a change of clothes, you're not allowed to bring any money, and you're not allowed to bring any food. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be sending you town to town, village to village. You're going to be walking there, you're going to be sweaty when you get there. And like I've already taught you, when you get there, look and see if you're, if you're received. If not, move on to the next town. If you are received, stay there. The journey's going to take a little while, don't you think? But his instructions are, do not bring any money, do not bring any food, do not bring a change of clothes. What's he trying to teach them? To rely on him that he will provide by his miraculous power for everything they need. Do what he says to do. Watch how he'll take care of it. Go to chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Had they learned the lesson? Listen to what Jesus says next. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and what? Rest a while. Hang on for a second. Those of you that know the scriptures, you know the story. He gets in the boat with his disciples. He's just offered them to rest. They're thinking hammock. They get in the boat. The crowd sees where they're going and runs on foot. Gets there ahead of them. Jesus and his disciples come to the shore. There's no rest. The people are all there. Jesus is teaching them. He has compassion on them. And the disciples come to him and they say, look, it's late in the day. Send him away so they can get something to eat. And Jesus turns to him and says, you feed him. In other words, I sent you without any food and no money. And you came back and told me all you did. I didn't get to see it. You sound pretty impressive. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a seat here on this rock. Knock yourself out. Let me see what you can do. Of course, what did they do? They looked at it with man's eyes. They each pulled their calculators out. NIV says eight months wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. And what does he do? He reteaches the lesson and he says, um, what do you got? John says they had five loaves of bread and two fish. And by the way, it wasn't wonder bread. It was a little boy packed lunch. Most likely five little biscuits and two sardines. 
And they said, well, how is this going to feed so many? And he said, go tell everybody to sit down in groups of 50s and 100. And they do. They have to go out in a crowd of people not knowing how in the world everybody's going to be fed. And they had to tell over 5,000 people, have a seat. Jesus is going to feed you before you go. And as they go and pass this out, over 5,000 people are fed. And there are 12 basketfuls left over, one for each knucklehead to pick up. Did they learn the lesson? No, go back to chapter 6 and look at verses 45 through 52. Immediately, he, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it's I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 folks is not a story by itself like we've studied over the years in Sunday school. It's actually a reteaching of the previous lesson when he had sent them out two by two and said, watch what I do, watch my provision. They come back thinking they had done it. He says, come rest. Again, they're thinking rest is getting a break. They're thinking rest is a sabbatical. I got no problem with naps. I'm good at them. Jesus took them. I think naps are awesome. But real rest, biblical rest doesn't come when you get a nap. Did Jesus know that the crowd was going to be there when they got there? Then why did he offer them rest? When he knew there was going to be no physical rest. You keep the story. He, when they're done feeding the 5,000, they've not had their physical rest. He puts them in the boat. They can't even get across the lake because the wind's against them. They can't even row against it. Jesus comes down from the mountain praying. He walks across the water. He could have walked around the lake just like everybody else. Why does he walk across the lake? Because he can, like you said, Thomas, to show what he can do. His walking on the water is a reteaching of the previous lesson. He sent him out and says, don't take care of yourself. I'll do it through you. They don't learn. He says, you feed them. We can't. Well, let me teach you how to rest again. Do what I say. Watch my power come through. They still don't get it. He demonstrates his power again. And they're walking on the water. By the way, when you get, keep reading, they get to the other side. There's all these people waiting for them. Folks, listen to me. I'm resting right now. You say, no, 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 you're working, Jim. You're working. Up. I'm sweating like a hog up here. I love sweating when I preach, by the way. I feel like I'm a better preacher when I sweat. I don't know why, but, but and I'm really good tonight. Don't get too close to me afterwards. But listen, I'm resting right now. You know why? Because I'm doing what he has asked me to do by his power. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when I go home tonight, I'm not going to ask Becky how I did. Because that guy's gone. That was the one who used to preach in his own strength. Oh, I studied and prayed and wrote everything all out. And I still study and I still pray and I still make notes. But half the time, we don't even get what I wrote down out because he's doing something different. And I used to always wonder how I could have done this or I could have done that. You ever done that? You ever examined how you did? You've never learned to rest in whatever gift God's given you. So folks, I want to encourage you to go deeper as followers of Christ. I believe this room full of people that would come and listen to this study and be a part of this on a regular basis on Tuesday nights, you've entered into his rest. If you haven't, I pray you don't leave here before you do. 
But there's a deeper part of that rest. That rest comes on a daily basis when we find what he's asked us to do beforehand and plan for us to do it beforehand. And we do it with the strength that he provides. If our attitude is, we need more people. I need you to help me. We need more workers. You ever heard that kind of preaching in the church? Those people don't know how to rest. Because if you're doing what God's asked you to do by the power that he's given you, you don't care if anybody else shows up because you know that you're doing what God's asked you to do. Martha says, Lord, tell my sister to help me. I'm working hard here. Jesus says, nope. Nope. You're worried about a whole lot of stuff. But she's chosen what's best. She's sitting at my feet. Oh, by the way, do you think if Jesus ever learned over to Mary and said, hey, Mary, would you get me a drink of water? Do you think she would have done it? But until then, she's just resting. For too long, the church today in America has looked like Martha. Programs and programs and working and we need everybody at work day and more and more and we trade to market. Folks, that's not what God wants from us. He says, you just do what I ask you to do and you believe I'm going to do it through you and you'll find my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love you. Let's come rest again next week.